Well, good evening. It's good to see you all this evening. And I came in uh, this evening and I said, what uh, transformation is about to take place on the platform behind us uh, in the next uh, hour or so, what you see behind me won't look anything like uh, what you see now. And so we're praising the Lord for the kids who are coming in. As Scott mentioned earlier, please be in prayer uh, for the kids who will be here tomorrow. Our registration seems to be on pace with previous years, and so that's both encouraging and disappointing at the same time. We wanted to continue to press forward and so be praying for that. And uh, to that end, there's some flyers out on the table. Uh, You could take those and hand them out to kids. Even if you do that tomorrow, you say, well, they missed Monday. That's okay. Usually our greatest or our biggest numbers come in on Wednesday and Thursday, and uh, our goal is is ultimately to reach kids that have never heard the gospel. That's our goal. And so uh, if there are kids that you know in your neighborhood that are the hooligans running around, uh, we want those kids. Uh, We want them to hear the gospel clearly and boldly. And so be handing out flyers in your own neighborhood as as you uh, encounter them. Uh, Tonight, uh, we're starting a new study. And uh, it is a difficult task to start one new study on a given week. It's an extraordinary task to start two. And uh, that was not my original design. It's just how the Lord worked out the details of that. And so we started in this morning's service. We started in 1 Thessalonians and spent our entire time in the book of Acts. This evening, we're going to start our series in the book of Ruth and spend at least part of our time in the book of Judges. Uh, Not a considerable amount of time. We'll actually be in the book of Ruth more tonight, but it is the necessary uh, turn and time that we spend in the background information. So turn to Ruth chapter 1, if you will. As you do so, I remember as a a child, and it's still true to this day, one of my uh, most um, disliked, I won't use any stronger word than that, but one of my most disliked genres of writing is romance. I actually, I, I hate it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't, it's, it's stronger than dislike. Uh, I, I do not like in any way romance novels of any kind. I do not like uh, the romance movie genre either. I, I just, I can't stand it. But there is a book that we are going to have the joy of studying over the next few weeks together, Lord willing, that I've entitled our start of, our beginning launching into Romance and Rescue, Ruth 1. It is really a novel, but it is a true novel. It is not fiction. It is an actual series of events. And it is important for us to understand it because it is of the greatest love story that has ever been told, and it involves you and I. Our kinsman redeemer is Christ. And the book of Ruth teaches us about the work of a kinsman redeemer. And so I will put aside my uh, disdain, maybe that's a better word, uh, for romance novels and get into what is actually the truth of the Word of God and take great joy in it. Uh, We are going to spend some time here in this book. And so I thought it was appropriate to go back to the nine-year-olds and see what they think of these things. And so there was a nine-year-old philosopher, his name is Roger, Uh, Again, nine-year-old philosopher named Roger. And he gave his opinion on love, and he said this, and I love it. uh, This is why this 
all this opening illustration focuses on just this. He says this. He says, falling in love is like an avalanche. You've got to run for your life. <laughs> There's a wise nine-year-old right there. Uh, from the feminine perspective, nine-year-old Janet replied, no one is sure how love happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. So those are the two perspectives. Let me give you J. Vernon McGee's perspective on Ruth, the book of Ruth. He says this, In the days when, might sound a little like once upon a time, but the book of Ruth reads like a novel. However, it is not fiction. And that is the book that we have before us. Before we go to the Lord in prayer, I do want to read the first five verses as it helps us to get into the book, we're going to spend the majority of the time just in the first three words, four words, depending on your translation, of the book of Ruth, but we are setting the stage for next week. And the scripture says this, beginning in verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the lands, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Imelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Shalon. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Imelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha. And the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Milan and Shalon died, so that the, women, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we begin a book that is so uh, desperately tied to the book that comes before it in the book of Judges. Lord, we praise you that in this book we see the beginning the the early connections of what Deuteronomy allows in the law and that is the kinsman redeemer or tonight as we look at the key components as to why the book of Ruth is in the canon of scripture pray that we would be found diligent in being faithful students that our proclivities for or against romantic novels would not be a hindrance to us but instead that we would understand with greater appreciation and a greater understanding of the love that Christ shows to us. Lord, we praise you for the excellent, the exemplary example of Boaz and Ruth in a time when the world seemed to be out of control. Judge after judge, the hearts of the people desperately wicked, civil war and unrest that rattled their days. And yet they would become an example to us of the Redeemer who is Christ and the restoration that is given to us because of salvation. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for this book. I ask that you would give me the words to speak tonight as we dig into a critical understanding, as we're just getting into the overview of this book. May we be those who are diligent students, that we would fall more in love with you as we see the imagery and the pictures that come out of the narrative that flows before us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this example. We are enhanced in our faith because of it. I pray that we would give you more glory. 
and the worship that is due you because of it as well. Lord, we love you and we thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This evening as we dig into the book of Ruth, we're going to see just a series of elements. These series of elements are to acquaint ourselves or maybe reacquaint ourselves with the book of Ruth. It is going to imply that you know something of the book of Ruth. And if you do not know something, the specifics of the book of Ruth, then you're going to need to come over the next several weeks to get into those specifics. But what we're ultimately doing is just giving us an overview of why the book of Ruth, despite some of its challenges, in fact, if you go into as, er, as late as Jonathan Edwards, he would not include the book of Ruth in the canon of Scripture. He didn't want it in there, and he didn't include it in there. And so uh, we recognize that even into the more modern era, we've had challenges against the book of Ruth, and there certainly were in the early days as well. But this is a book that is in the canon of Scripture and has a place in the canon of Scripture. And we're going to see why over these next few points here this evening. The first of those points is this first one. It is an image of the gospel of grace, of the gospel of grace. It is an image of the gospel of grace. And Ruth, so we're going to largely spend our time in background information tonight. One of those is, how many of you know that Ruth is one of the five scrolls that is read every year in Jewish culture? Anybody know that? Okay, a couple of you know that. Anybody know why or which feast that it's read? The book of Ruth is read in the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. We're going to understand why in just a moment as we understand it in the Gospel of Grace, but it is interesting to me that this Feast of Weeks, that is Pentecost as we know it, as we understand it, we have the book of Ruth read every year. There's a lot of reasons for why that may be, and part of it is Jewish tradition and Jewish history. We don't really know the ultimate reason But that really doesn't matter, as it is God's reason, and it is there for the specifics of things that would happen thousands of years, a thousand or two thousand years after these events. The Feast of Weeks happens 50 days after Passover, which puts it seven weeks, which puts it as Pentecost. It's the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Weeks is a significant time of sacrifice of the first fruits of the harvest. So this is a time when Israel would gather together all of the first fruits, the order of service, the sacrificial services are all laid out in Leviticus as to what is to take place at this Feast of Weeks. Ultimately, this is a celebration of what God has provided, and it is a pouring out of the best of the crops, both grain and animal. And so the Feast of Weeks is a celebratory feast. And it is at this celebratory feast that the book of Ruth is read. The book is read, perhaps, and as most scholars believe, it is read largely because the setting of the book of Ruth happens during the same time frame as Pentecost. So at the time of the harvest. And the immediate and major portions of the book of Ruth taking place there. So we're going to read the book of Ruth during that feast. That's simplistic, but it is perhaps true. 
The other ideas that others have is that it ties into David, and because the book of Ruth details the line of David leading up to David himself, perhaps it is read during the Feast of Weeks because there's the belief that David died around the time of the Feast of Weeks. So it was a memorial read and memorial to David's line, and the book indeed does end with David. In fact, if you turn, we'll turn there in a few moments, but you can go ahead and do so now. If you turn to the very last word of the book, the very last word of the book of Ruth is David. This genealogy that leads to David. So perhaps it is read in memorial to David. In fact, I would kind of say that there's more reasons why that may be the reason. And ultimately, they boil to the line of David himself. And who would come from that line? Because Pentecost would mean a lot more to the church than it would mean to Israel. And the Lord is going to use this time to demonstrate the kinsman redeemer to you and I. It is not by accident, whatever your reason, whatever you believe, whatever scholars you follow, it is not by accident that the love story, one of the greatest love stories of the Old Testament example, and the only one that provides the kinsman redeemer, winning Ruth as his bride, would be read during the Feast of Pentecost. That is not by accident. It is by design. Where the kinsman redeemer initiated the redeeming of his bride, the church, many years after the writing of Ruth. Ruth, as we understand, and we have already read in verse 1 and following, Ruth is a Moabite. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 would say and would require that she is forbidden to enter into the assembly of the Lord. She is outside. She's not allowed. She's, no Amalekite or Moabite was allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. But Boaz will be her kinsman redeemer. And as such, it was not because of Ruth's merit, but because of his love for her and his grace demonstrated to her that Boaz would be our example, our greatest example in all of the pages of Scripture until Christ of the kinsman redeemer. The church shares Ruth's story. We are as Ruth was. Our kinsman redeemer is not Boaz, it's Christ. And we are redeemed not because of our merit, but because of the grace and love of Christ. What the law forbids, grace provides. That is the story of the book of Ruth. That is what Ruth is about. And it is an image of the gospel of grace. So way back into the Old Testament... Can you imagine as we started 1 Thessalonians this morning that it's very likely that as Paul is reasoning in the synagogue in Thessalonica, that he is pointing to the book of Ruth at least in a short way to point to the kinsman redeemer who is Christ. So what we started this morning in 1 Thessalonians is likely part of the message that Paul would reason, that he would prove, that he would explain and extort exegete together with those who were in Thessalonica. The first 
reason that Ruth is in the canon is because it provides for us an image of the gospel of grace. The second is that it is revealing the love of Christ. It is revealing the love of Christ. Write this passage down, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 through 10. And we'll see there the provisions defined for us. The reason I'm not having us turn there tonight is it is the provision that is provided for the protection of widows and the maintaining of property through an heir of the deceased husband's line. And so the entire book of Ruth is that. So where it's found in the Old Testament, where it's found in the law is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And so in a summary, this is what is to happen. And we'll reference it throughout our study, but tonight we don't have time. Just write it down and spend some time this week going back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. The most complete picture of a kinsman redeemer in the entirety of the Old Testament is this book of Ruth. So what happens in Deuteronomy chapter 25 is expounded on here. We see it in its fullness demonstrated in this text that is before us. Of course, as the book of Ruth will demonstrate, not just anyone can marry a widow. So one of the challenges that a widow faced at the time of the judges was that if her husband died and there was no heir, the line died there as well, and she would be impoverished very, very quickly. And so in order for her to have maintained both the property and the heirship, the line of her husband to continue to move forward, and the protection and preservation of her own life, there would need to be a kinsman redeemer. And that is what we find here in Boaz. Now, Ruth, as we will understand in the coming days, Ruth is not allowed to just marry anyone until the closest family members have said no. So there's a balance act that is here. And we see the revealing love of Christ demonstrated in this and in Boaz. What we notice is, and we'll identify him early, there is a, another family member who's closer in line than Boaz is. But there was no responsibility of the Redeemer or the kinsman to actually be the Redeemer. It was something that they had to voluntarily take. And there's two keys that we must understand. First, the Redeemer had to be a relative. The Redeemer had to be a relative. And it is interesting, and keep your fingers here in Ruth, turn to the New Testament. We're going to spend some time jumping back and forth. So we turn to the New Testament, Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> the Scripture, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 4 in the book of Galatians, the Scripture says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ is our perfect kinsman redeemer. But in order to be our kinsman redeemer, he had to become like one of us. And so did you notice what Galatians put forth, what Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit, puts forth for us? Verse 4 again, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Why was Christ born in the flesh? 
Why did he have to take on the form of a bondservant, as Paul says in the book of Philippians? To redeem you and I. Why? Because the kinsman redeemer had to be related. The kinsman redeemer had to be related. And we see that as the first of two points. The redeemer had to be a relative. And it was the closest relative who could do the redemption. And if he refused, it would go down the line, so on. Second, the Redeemer <clears throat> doesn't need to take on the estate, which is what I've alluded to already. The Redeemer doesn't need to take on the bankrupt estate especially. So he doesn't become the Redeemer then, he just is simply remaining the kinsman. So if he's a kinsman, he can say, well, I don't really want all that this entails. And remember, that's what Boaz does to the unnamed family member. As we'll see in the book, this is where we'll eventually get to in the book of Ruth, but there's an opportunity for somebody else to redeem Ruth and her husband's line. But the first kinsman says, eh, I'll take the land, but if I have to do that for the sake of Elimelech, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. The kinsman does not have to be the redeemer. It's not his problem unless he wants it to be. What does that reveal about the love of Christ if he is our kinsman redeemer? Boaz chose to marry a widow woman who was a Moabite, tainted by idolatry, excluded from the presence of the Lord, but he illustrates for us the love of Christ. Again, keep your finger here in Ruth, or if you're in the New Testament, stay there. We're going to turn over to 1 Peter. And notice the correlation. If we had time, and we will as we study through the rest of the book of Ruth, we're going to really dig into these themes, but they're overarching starting point for us tonight. But 1 Peter chapter 2 and read with me verse 24. The scripture says this, He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, or in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Consider what this means about our kinsman redeemer. It was not the responsibility of Christ to take on our mess. But when he did take on our mess, he has chosen us and he is working on our behalf through his own costs. That's what Boaz does for Ruth. Boaz illustrates Christ. Romans 5.8 is another, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ chose to redeem a sinful, tainted bride while we were still enemies, separated, different then. Back in 1 Peter, we understand the next portion of this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, where the Scripture says this, but with the precious blood of Christ, let me back up to verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. A kinsman redeemer was not one who redeemed the uh, kinsman or the widow of his kinsman with their money, but with his own possessions. Christ didn't redeem you in your own work. It is impossible for Christ to be the kinsman redeemer if you contributed to the process of the redemption. That can't happen. Christ is our perfect kinsman redeemer, and he redeemed us by his own precious blood, not by your works. Boaz redeemed Ruth with his own resources, his own money. Ruth had nothing, but Boaz redeemed her. Again, I mentioned John McGee earlier. I'll mention him again. He says this, Redemption is a love story of a kinsman redeemer who neither counted the cost nor figured up the profit and loss, but for the joy paid an exorbitant price for one that he loved. He continues by saying, The book of Ruth declares that redemption is not a business transaction. It is a love story. And it is revealing the love of Christ through the example of Boaz and Ruth. So that is our first one and our second one. First is it reveals or gives to us the image of the gospel of grace. The second one is revealing the love of Christ. The third one is that it gives to us the lineage of Jesus Christ. The lineage of Jesus Christ. Ruth 4, 18 through 22, which I just pointed you to earlier this evening, <clears throat> is an example of the line of Christ. It is the genealogy. It starts with Perez, and it ends with verse 22, Obed fathering Jesse, Jesse fathering David, and Obed is the son of Boaz in verse 21, born through Ruth. Some believe that the reason for the inclusion of Ruth in the canon is in fact this one section of the book. And in fact, we know that both Matthew and Luke would pull their information from Ruth. They would use what Ruth provides in their genealogies at the beginning of both of those gospel letters. It's interesting to me, as you think of both Matthew and Luke, and as we look here, we don't get a lot of detail of who the mothers were in Ruth, but we do get those lists in Matthew and Luke of who mom was in the process. And it is fascinating to me that when we do that, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 6, we find out that Boaz's mother was a Gentile. And her name probably familiar to you since we studied the book of Joshua not long ago together, was Rahab. So Rahab is the mother of Boaz, and Boaz marries a Gentile woman himself named Ruth. Ruth didn't just marry any man, she married a man of the royal line of Judah. Additionally, Boaz's Gentile mother, Rahab, didn't just marry a regular Jewish man, she married one of the royal line of Judah as well, obviously. The two Gentile women in the line of Christ become very important, and there's a deeper study that is needed here at some point, but it is a scholarly study indeed. 
But it is helpful for us tonight to understand that Jesus is not only the legal heir to the throne of David, as we see through the line that is demonstrated here in the book of Ruth and built upon in Matthew and in Luke, but we also recognize that he has the role of Israel's high priest. And so truly and authentically, he is able to make his bride eligible to reign with him. So Christ is truly our king, our high priest, and our redeemer. And it is all illustrated right here in the book of Ruth, as it shows the line and the lineage of Jesus Christ. These are critical names that we will study in the days to come that builds us to David. And Ruth, Rahab, both the line of Christ. And so it is found here in the canon, partially because of what it contains in the genealogies, but it is also evidence of the pursuit of godliness in an ungodly time. Evidence of the pursuit of godliness in an ungodly time. The book of Ruth is a companion book. In fact, it's been called the golden peg that holds the book of Judges together. The, it is a companion book to the book of Judges. And turn across the page, if you're in Ruth 1, turn across the page. You probably don't even have to turn a page in many of your Bibles, but turn across the page to verse 25 of the last chapter, verse, uh, chapter 21, in the book of Judges. And the scripture there says this, in verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If there was a summary statement of the book of Judges better than that, I don't know it. There is this constant ebb and flow, and we're going to highlight just a couple of those as we see perhaps when the book of Ruth was to take place. The days of the judges were severe low points in the history of Israel. One author writes this, he says, these days were the lowest points, days of division, cruelty, apostasy, civil war, and national disgrace. Some believe that Ruth took place, and if you want to, you can thumb back to Judges chapter 9. Some believe that Ruth took place, the book of Ruth, that is, took place during the events of the judge Gideon. And you and I, and if we travel to Israel sometime together, we'll go to the spring where Gideon was at, and just before he was to go into battle, and you know the story how men had gathered and the Lord kept slicing them away. But and ultimately getting down to just a couple hundred men. And you know, as they would come up and they would smash the vases and light the torches, and those massive, or that massive army before them would kill themselves, the Midianites would kill themselves, and the battle would be won for Gideon. And we stop there. Maybe we talk about Gideon and the fleece, and we stop there. But if you've studied or read through the book of Judges, you know that Gideon would go from good to ungodly. He eventually marries a number of women, Gideon does. He eventually has 70 sons. And when Gideon dies, one of his sons kill, has the others killed, and he himself is assassinated a few years later by the people. That doesn't seem like good times. Some believe that Ruth took place during the time of Samson, the judge, Samson the judge, and you know Samson. Uh, you know him because of his long flowing locks of hair. 
And we know Samson wasn't a good guy. We know he's a strong guy. And he, we know that he was a judge in Israel. And Israel did turn for a time a, a little bit towards the things of the Lord. But we also know that Samson was no better than Gideon. In fact, he was probably worse than Gideon. He had mistress after mistress. And one after the other until he tells Delilah the secret of his hair in Judges 16. And so you can flip over to Judges 16, and perhaps that is the time when the events of Ruth and Boaz take place. The point being that the period of the Judges was a terrible time in the history of Israel. It was not a good time. And Boaz and Ruth have few examples of godliness to follow, uh, precious few examples of godliness to follow. There has never been, and this is important for us tonight, there has never been an easy time to do the right thing. Have you noticed that? If I made that decision five years ago, that would have been easier. If I could make that decision ten years from now, that will be easier. There's no easy time to do the right thing. There's no easy time to find a spouse. Was it difficult, if you think back to your days before your spouse, was it difficult to find a godly spouse? Challenging? Was there stress, angst in those decisions that were being made? There's no easy time to find a good and godly spouse. There's no easy time to raise a godly family. There's no easy time to develop a godly business or run a ministry. Anything that glorifies God is always going to be a minority position in the course of day-to-day life in our world. Yet Boaz and Ruth provide us with an encouraging witness of six things that I want to draw out for us, and we're going to see them throughout the letter, or throughout the book, rather. Just, I'm going to give them to you somewhat quickly, and we're going to build on them in the days to come. First, the sanctuary of a godly home. Ruth and Boaz provide us an encouraging witness of the sanctuary of a godly home. They also provide to us the commitment to humble service to those who are in need. So they're an encouraging witness of the sanctuary of a godly home, and they're an an encouraging witness of the commitment to humble service to those in need. They're an encouraging witness of the description of godly manhood that shepherds a family. And beloved, don't we need that today? An example of godly manhood. It also provides a presentation of godly womanhood that pursues a virtuous life. It's an encouraging witness of the sanctity of the marriage vow. And related to that, so I'm going to read these again in just a moment. Related to that, the fidelity of marriage when mistresses were as common or perhaps even more common than wives. So Boaz and Ruth provide us with an encouraging witness of, again, first, the sanctuary of a godly home. Two, the commitment to humble service to those in need. Three, the description of godly manhood that shepherds a family. For the presentation of godly womanhood that pursues a virtuous life. Five, the sanctity of the marriage vow. Six, the fidelity of marriage when mistresses were as common as wives. The pursuit of godliness in an ungodly age. 
is one of the reasons we need to study the book of Ruth. We live in an ungodly age. Let us have the same commitments that Ruth and Boaz had. Finally, this evening, we dig into the providence, God's providence. And this is an amazing element and one that is of great encouragement to us as well. A quick read through the four chapters of the book of Ruth might leave you with the impression of amazement and how all of these coincidental details could work out as they did. If that's all you read as you read through the book of Ruth, go back and read through the book of Ruth. These are not simply coincidences. God is directing these events. The book reveals that God is the director. He orchestrates everything to fulfill his purposes. Imagine that you're a Limelech. You've gone off. You've left out of rebellion. Whatever the reason was, that Elimelech left Israel, probably out of a desperation, but to go to Moab was the worst place he could have gone. To go to Moab across the Jordan River was true and open rebellion. And it was probably the result of the rebellious people of Israel and God's judgment upon the rebellious people of Israel and their crops wouldn't produce anymore. And so when their crops wouldn't produce, Elimelech leaves, he goes across the Jordan River, he takes his wife and his two sons, and his sons will further the rebellion by marrying Moabite women which they were commanded explicitly not to do. But God takes the rebellion of Elimelech and the further rebellion of his sons, and he begins to use it in the heart and life of Ruth. Can you imagine if you're Elimelech and you're on your deathbed in Moab? You know that you're in Moab because of rebellion. Do you think that there is a lingering doubt that runs through your mind saying, I never should have been here in the first place? Warranted, but Elimelech doesn't see the big picture. Even in his rebellion, God would use him. The characters of the narrative had to have had all kinds of thoughts, doubts, and wrongly placed confidences. If I go over here to Moab, things will be better. It was not better. If I marry Moabite women, it'll be better. It clearly was not better, and Naomi knew it. Except God would intercede through Ruth. They do not know, these characters, do not know how this will end. And the truth is, in our present circumstances, neither do we. Neither do we. And so what should we do? We should be those who are following the example of Ruth and Boaz and faithfully walking forward in the instruction and the admonition of the Lord through his word and allowing the Lord to direct our course and our path. We don't know the end. We don't know the next step. We just know what obedience looks like in following the things of the Lord. One commentator gave this illustration, and I'm going to end here. He says this, Be like the college student who stood up in front of her peers at the end of a missions conference. She held up a sheet of paper and said, This blank piece of paper represents my life, now dedicated to Christ. It symbolizes that I am open to whatever he wants to write into my life. I am willing for anything. 
she would add then, <clears throat> the only thing <clears throat> that I have done on this sheet of papers, at the bottom of this page, I have signed my name. Everything is yet unknown, but I have signed on my life is his. That is what we should glean from the book of Ruth. Let us be those who allow the Lord to have the blank page. We've signed off. Whatever he wants to do, <clears throat> he can do. When we study the book of Ruth together, we have just given to, to or just studied together five reasons why we should study the book of Ruth. Five reasons why it's in the canon of Scripture. And as we dig into it over the next several weeks together, my prayer is that we will not only read it for the, the quick four-chapter book that it is, but that we would dig into it and understand how God is using this book to reveal Himself to you and I. He is our perfect kinsman redeemer. We can trust that God is directing and orchestrating the affairs and the events of life. Our responsibility is walking in obedience. Let's walk faithfully. Are there, are there turbulent events happening around us? Yes, absolutely. Are they worse than the time of Ruth? Kind of doubt it. Kind of doubt it. I praise the Lord that we have the example of the book of Judges because it would be tempting for us to say, well, Ruth's time was easier. Ruth's time was not any easier than our time. Not necessarily saying it was harder either. It's never easy to follow the Lord. But let us be those who are committed as we study through the book of Ruth to follow faithfully after the things of the Lord. Tonight as I close in prayer, I'm going to close <clears throat> and dismiss <clears throat> as we often do, but I'm going to ask you also to commit to one thing. If you're participating in VBS, thank you very much. Uh, we have a number of helpers who are going to be participating in VBS again this year. Uh, it is a ministry that is quick, fast-paced, and then it's over. And everybody looks forward with great longing to Friday. And, uh, but we're thankful for the work that happens along the way. But if you can't be here during the week, please commit to praying for Vacation Bible School and the opportunities that we have with these kids coming from Christianized societies sometimes are the hardest to reach for the gospel. And so pray that the gospel would penetrate. One of the things we do is we try to bring all the parents in here at the close of uh, the morning, and uh, they see and they observe the skit, and the skit is very clear about giving the gospel. So pray for parents that they too would come to know Christ as Savior. Those are our goals uh, this year with it. And so I tie that on just to say as we close in prayer tonight, uh, be in an attitude of prayer throughout all week. Uh, for those of you who are staying around <clears throat> to help set up, uh, we got a lot of setup to do in a very quick, uh, short period of time, so we could use all the help for that as well. But let me close this evening in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you grateful tonight for the testimony of Ruth, the book of Ruth. Lord, it is easy for us to skim the book of Ruth. We read it on the surface and we don't necessarily understand the great theological impact that it has on what Christ has done for us. I pray that we would be those who faithfully understand the process, the work of, and the testimony of the kinsman redeemer. 
May your name be glorified as we leave here tonight, putting into practice the five things that we've understood already about the book of Ruth. May we now reread it with renewed vision and dig deeply into the themes of what it means to have a kinsman redeemer such as Christ. Cause this to increase in our awareness of what Christ has done for us and our praise that would be uttered upon our lips and our obedience that would be demonstrated by our hands and our feet. Lord, we also pray for Vacation Bible School this week. It is a special week of ministry. It is a unique opportunity that comes around just once a year. Pray that we would have abundant opportunity to participate in these kids' lives and their parents' lives, as well as on Friday night that a good number of them would attend the picnic and that we would be able to interact with them there as well, that many would come to know Christ as their Savior. Seeds would be planted and watered, and that the harvest would be plentiful this week. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the work that has gone in. We thank you for the servants who are filling in these roles in such a critical ministry as this. And we ask that you would bless and encourage them, give them good night's rest and rest throughout the week, that they'd be renewed and refreshed for each day. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for all of these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen.